Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Supporters of the Indian Child Welfare Act are celebrating a major legal victory today. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld the 45-year-old law against what legal experts said was the most significant challenge in recent memory. Today we hear from some of those experts about whether this ruling provides long-term momentum to their cause or if it's just the next round in a never-ending series of legal attacks on ICWA. We'll take up the case right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. When the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act Thursday, there was a collective sigh of relief among Alaska Native leaders. As KMBA's Rhonda McBride reports, they had feared the worst. The Alaska Federation of Natives has been involved in the fight to protect ICWA for years. This is something we care deeply about. The president of AFN, Julie Kitka, says a lot was at stake far beyond the right of tribes to oversee adoptions. A lot of threads of federal Indian law, the authority for the Congress to deal with Alaska Natives, Native Americans, derives from that. Kitka says had efforts to overturn ICWA succeeded, tribal sovereignty could have seen widespread erosion. Brian Ridley, head of the Tanana Chiefs Conference in Interior, Alaska, says ICWA has been a success story for tribes. All the years of work that we've done to get to this point in trying to protect our Native kids. But during a U.S. Supreme Court hearing last year, Matthew McGill, the attorney representing a white family fighting to adopt a Native child, argued that ICWA had discriminated against them and put the interests of the tribe over the needs of the child. That means each year, hundreds, if not thousands, of Indian children are placed in non-Indian foster homes. And sometimes there, they bond with those families. Justice Amy Coney Barrett wrote the majority opinion and cited more than a century of precedent and the plaintiff's lack of standing on the issues. Richard Peterson, president of Clinkett and Haida, the largest tribal group in Alaska, says the lawsuit had one benefit. It brought more than 500 tribes together. We keep winning because we're on the right side. Peterson says the unity achieved to fight for ICWA will still be needed and believes the threats to tribal sovereignty are far from over. I'm Rhonda McBride. Native state lawmakers in South Dakota are praising the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act. They say now's the time to push for better outcomes for Native children in the state. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger has more. Under ICWA, Native children removed from their homes are placed with relatives, tribal members, or other Native families. The Supreme Court is upholding the law, which says the state must work to keep children close to their culture. Yeah, I'm super happy. That's Republican Representative Tamara St. John, a Dakota from Sisseton. She's chair of the State Tribal Relations Committee. She wants to sit down with DSS and tribal partners about where to go next identify any gaps or what we can do to strengthen um, current policies and how the state and tribal partners are working with the federal law. Native American children make up about 60% of kids in the welfare system. That's according to Representative Puri Purier, a Lakota Democrat who represents the district that covers the Pine Ridge Reservation. 
Puryear says this is a big moment for Indian country. The Supreme Court's ruling is a resounding recognition of the inherent rights of tribal nations to protect their children and the imperative of preserving our culture identity, political status as citizens of tribal nations. Puryear says there's still work to do. Last session, Puryear and other Native lawmakers sought to establish a task force that would look closer at the issue. That bill and another that would codify ICWA failed. Stephanie Amiot is the legal director for the ACLU South Dakota. She says while the ruling is a victory for tribal sovereignty, the state should pass its own ICWA legislation. We think that the legislature should definitely um, look at that again, and this time they should pass it. I'm Lee Strubinger in Rapid City. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education sovereignty, it begins with us. Early bird registration is July 28th at NIEA.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America calling. Supporters of the Indian Child Welfare Act won a major victory from the U.S. Supreme Court although what the court did is reaffirm a long string of similar rulings since the ICWA became law 45 years ago. Still, this one feels different, perhaps because so many legal and policy experts were prepared for the worst. Had it gone the other direction, legal scholars say the decision could have had far-reaching consequences impacting tribal sovereignty and governance. Instead, the court rejected the challenges to ICWA that have worked their way through the legal system over a number of years. The vote was 7-2, to In her opinion, for the majority, Justice Amy Coney Barrett wrote, The petitioner's arguments fail to grapple with our precedent, and because they bear the burden of establishing ICWA's unconstitutionality, we cannot sustain their challenge to the law. We'll get a thorough breakdown of the ruling and what it means today. Please join the dialogue by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got a high wattage group of guests on our show today, folks. Uh, Five different guests from all different parts of Native America, all uniquely qualified to talk about both the legal and policy aspects of ICWA. And joining us first from the Leech Lake Reservation in Minnesota is Dr. Sarah Kostelik. She's the executive director of the National Indian Child Welfare Association. She's a LUTIC. Sarah, welcome back to our show. Thanks so much, Sean. Really happy to be here with you today. You bet, Sarah. So please, initial reactions to yesterday's ruling? Well, holy smokes. You know, we've been waiting for this decision for some weeks now. Many of us are on the Supreme Court website on Thursday mornings, pressing refresh, refresh as the opinions get published. And um, yesterday was the day. So this 7-2 decision is a definitive victory for Native kids and their families and for tribal nations. 
I think, you know, this opinion, the majority opinion, is a really full-throated defense of the Indian Child Welfare Act and of tribal sovereignty more broadly. So you really see the court standing on hundreds of years of precedent. And it's a really clear message, I think, that uh, these bogus attacks on tribal sovereignty that lack any legal foundation are not going to be tolerated. Sarah, we're hearing words like overjoyed, massive win for Indian country. How does yesterday's decision fit with other rulings you followed over your career as an advocate for ICWA? Well, you know, there were multiple claims. Uh, we were expecting a complex decision uh, at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals level. Uh, when they heard the case on Bonk, the, the opinion they handed down was 325 pages. You know, so we just were not sure what to expect from this court. Uh, we were um, heartened by oral arguments, by the lines of inquiry there. And uh, we've been planning for multiple scenarios uh, from this decision for months now. So um, I think uh, we just didn't know what to expect. Um, we kind of did a double take when we read the opinion mm -hmm. yesterday morning. And, uh, and absolutely, there was celebration. There were tears of joy. You know, I think for many of us, first and foremost, we're holding in our minds the images of our kids, of our families, right, and what this ruling means in terms of these protections that will continue to be in place. Uh, ICWA is still the law of the land. It is binding federal law. So our kids and families know what to expect when they come into contact with the state child welfare system. They have significant rights. There are protections to keep families together. So that's really meaningful. Sarah, you touched on the doubts that so many people had with regard to how this decision was going to go yesterday. You know, there was just, you know, quite a bit of pessimism among ICWA supporters since Breckine surfaced, especially since the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling. Was there ever a, a time when you just thought, you know what, we're going to lose this one. This is not going to go the way it needs to go. You know, I think we, many of us as advocates have had those moments of doubt, but I think, um, you know, at NICPRO, we're not just a culturally based organization, but our work comes from a spiritual orientation. And so when we think about things like these significant threats, we feel like we have a choice, you know, as, as human beings, we have a choice and we choose to put our energy into the moment by moment unfolding of creation. That's where we want to put our energy. That's where we want to put our thoughts. Uh, that's what we want to join together with. So while certainly there were questions about where the court would go with this, I think our orientation has always been to say, no matter what the court decides, there will be paths forward. As Indian people, we've known for thousands of years how to raise healthy, thriving children. We know how to do that. And whatever the court hands us, we'll deal with. You know, the landscape may change, uh, but there are many different avenues to pursue at many different levels of government. There are many ways that we can go about this. And so while certainly it was scary waiting for months for a decision, but we always felt like we can either put our thoughts into uh, the negative energy, the uncertainty, the fear, because that's real, or we can choose moment by moment to join our energy to this unfolding of creation, to the next thing that's that's coming. And, and that's what we chose to do. So we chose to focus on those paths forward, no matter what the court gave us. 
Sarah, thank you for kicking us off today. I'd like to bring our next guest into the conversation now, Derek Bietso. He is the director of the College of Law, Indian Gaming, and Self-Governance at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. And Derek is a citizen of the Navajo Nation. Derek, welcome back to NAC. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Derek. Now, you attended Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals oral arguments for Brackeen. How did you feel coming out of that hearing compared to what we just heard from the Supreme Court decision yesterday? Sure. And I think to really understand the context of that, you also have to go back to baby Veronica, which was kind of a precursor to all of this litigation. I think everybody over there in New Orleans in the courthouse that day uh, had a very uh, real sense of uncertainty. And um, I just want to take a moment and just really thank uh, folks like Sarah uh, from NICWA and others that have really uh, held steadfast to the principles that underlie ICWA and have tried to champion those principles at every single level in this litigation. Uh, but yeah, it was definitely uh, a, a day where nobody really knew what to expect, um, but we knew that this was kind of part of a path towards the broader goal, which was to tee this up for review by the Supreme Court. So we knew the day was coming um, eventually, and so I think a lot of uncertainty was around that day. Mm -hmm. Well, this decision, you know, it addressed the Fifth Circuit decision so specifically and so thoroughly. Does the current ruling have any influence on, on other issues that the Fifth Circuit might tackle outside of ICWA? So I'm thinking of Indian gaming, jurisdiction, things of that nature. Sure. I think one of the things that really stood out to me um, was the broader implications of the decision with respect to Congress's Indian Affairs Authority. I think what you saw the petitioners doing here was trying to attack Congress's authority generally to pass laws that legislate in this space. And uh, Justice Coney Barrett was very clear about Congress's Indian Affairs Authority, uh, mentioning the prior precedent where the court has upheld constitutional authority to legislate in areas outside of the strictly commerce. So I think that's huge in a lot of different areas. Uh, also, you know, this idea uh, of Congress's plenary authority, which a lot of us have heard about over the years, was something that the court seemed intent on trying to dial, on trying to dial back a little bit. So it'll be interesting how that comes into play in the future uh, outside of uh, ICWA and, and moving forward in federal Indian law jurisprudence. Let's go to the phones now. We've already got a caller. Joining us from Tasuki Pueblo is Gilvy Hill. He is the former Tasuki Pueblo governor, and he's president of the board of directors of the National Indian Child Welfare Association. Hello, Gil. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you feeling today? Uh, relieved, excited, happy. Uh, I can't really express my feelings of from the decisions uh, yesterday morning. So it's just an awesome day for Native Americans and our children and families. Like Sarah said, uh, we're just elated with the decision. Absolutely. Uh, Gillen, what are your thoughts on all these folks that have just worked so tirelessly for so many years uh, behind the scenes, pushing papers, going to hearings, filing documents, what would you like to say to all those folks? Um, I just want to extend a great gratitude to everybody that was part of the protection of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And like uh, Mr. Beatsville said, this started with the baby Veronica case, the challenges to ICWA started way back then. And the thing, I guess, for us as NICWA, we were not well prepared for the baby Veronica case. 
So when this case came up, we were ready to get ready for it, and we did whatever we needed to do. But the major, I think, impact that we had was to let people let tell our story about what ICWA was about nationally, and we hired a PR firm to do that for us, and which was a great success, I think, because it really made people aware what the intention of the NHL Welfare Act was really about, and not what the people that were contending it was. It wasn't that. And so um, uh, our board, our board of uh, for the National Child Welfare Association, and certainly the staff, uh, were critical in this whole journey. The last three three years, I guess, if you will, uh, from the time that well, since last year, from when their case was heard in the Supreme Court, uh, and like Sarah said, we were prepared. I think. Uh, to address the issue, no matter what the outcome was yesterday, whatever the decision was, I think we were prepared for that. Uh, and so we were ready to roll up our sleeves and, and fight for our children if we had to. But the decision yesterday was, uh, I think, for all of us, a lot of relief, uh, just gratitude. And like Sarah said, a lot of it was based on our traditional cultural ways of dealing with situations like that, and that's prayer. Like my chairman, Governor Chavria, I'm also the executive director for the Eight Northern Indian Public Council. And Governor Chavria is our chairman. He always remind, remind us of the power of prayer. And I think that has a significant way. We at NICWA want to think that we are a tribal or a uh, traditional council. And mm-hmm. so we bring in traditional cultural ways, and prayer is certainly one of the ways that we do it. And Gil, again, thank you. I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a break, Gil, but really appreciate you calling in. Gil V. Hill, Tesuki Pueblo, Northern New Mexico, commenting on yesterday's Supreme Court ruling. We're going to be back right after this break, folks. A mix of African, Native American, Spanish, and Black slaves known as Black Seminoles continue to hold on to their cultural connections while scattered among several states, Mexico, and even Caribbean islands. We'll get to know some Black Seminoles and dive into their history and culture on the next Native America Calling. services. Thanks for tuning in today to Native America Calling. We're breaking down the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling that sustains the Indian Child Welfare Act. ICWA supporters are celebrating the decision today as a win for tribal sovereignty and for Native families. What do you think? Does ICWA impact your life? Tell us how at 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848 or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our next two guests are on the line right now. Joining us from Anchorage, Alaska, is Aaron Darty Lynch, senior staff attorney for the Native American Rights Fund. She's the counsel of record on the tribal amicus brief for nearly 500 tribes, as well as the tribal organizations for the Holland versus Brackeen case. Aaron, welcome to Native America Calling. Hi, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you today. 
Absolutely, Aaron. And joining us from Boulder, Colorado, is Beth Wright. She is a staff attorney with NARF, who also was instrumental in submitting the tribal amicus brief. She is Laguna Pueblo. Beth, thanks for being with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Aaron, I'd like to ask you first, can you give us a rundown on the legal highlights of this case? And is it safe to say from Justice Barrett's ruling that petitioners argued ICWA exceeds federal authority, it infringes the state sovereignty, and it discriminates on the basis of race? Yes, exactly. Those are the, you know, the the petitioners' briefs um, had had a lot of arguments. They they raised a number of constitutional objections to the Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, many of their arguments had sub-arguments that crossed each other, and it was a bit uh, difficult uh, to tease out for advocates, but also for the court. I think you saw that at oral argument. Uh, but but the court's opinion, um, uh, Justice Barrett's opinion from yesterday, really breaks their arguments out into those three uh, arguments that you just mentioned. So they, yes, they first argued that ICWA, uh, the Congress exceeded its authority when it passed ICWA. They also had a whole host of arguments that ICWA was uh, impermissible under the anti-commandeering doctrine. And then they have another set of arguments that ICWA uh, uh, was, uh, is a race-based law and, um, and thus uh, has equal protection problems. Okay. Beth, would you like to add anything to those highlights? I think Aaron covered all of those. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, well, Aaron, you know, regarding this lingering question, and, and that's, you know, after this decision um, regarding whether or not ICWA is based on this unconstitutional racial preference, we're still not clear on that. I mean, Justice Kavanaugh, he addressed the preference issue by calling it a serious one, but but that was it. So I, I'm really curious. I mean, how important is it for ICWA's future going forward to have this racial preference question answered once and for all? Oh, that's a great question. And and I apologize. I should have said, as you did, uh, that on those first issues, and, and as Derek mentioned, um, you know, uh, the court clearly affirmed uh, Congress's authority to pass ICWA. also just, uh, rejected on the merits all of the anti-commandeering arguments. The, the, you know, set of arguments that you mentioned about equal protection are one of the big sets of arguments that gave everyone so much heartburn from the very beginning. I think there's maybe a couple takeaways here. One, I think it's a victory that the court, uh, you know, bounced those issues on standing. That is something that tribes and the federal government had been raising to the district court and to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, neither of them which really engaged with that. So I personally think that that is a victory, uh, right, uh, for for tribes um, because the court recognized that neither or none of these parties, I should say, had the standing to raise these claims. What that will do, I think it's worth um, people having some uh, measure of continued heartburn over these uh, over these equal protection arguments. I have not seen them myself, but I've been told that the uh, opposition's attorneys were tweeting and were giving interviews basically saying that they will pivot to bringing equal protection challenges in state courts. So I don't think they will give up, but I don't think anyone ever expected them to give up uh, anyway. These are a group of well-funded 
uh, anti-tribal advocates who are determined to keep pushing these issues. And so in my mind, this is one of the best possible outcomes, actually, that, that Indian country could have achieved uh, is, is kicking this issue. Um, you know, uh, I know it, it, uh, it, it causes a bit of anxiety to kick it uh, to another day. But I also didn't get the opinion, or get, you know, it's my opinion after reading the opinion, that I'm not sure that there's really an appetite among a majority of court members to entertain those arguments at a later date. Um, certainly, uh, you know, the two justices who wrote dissenting opinions are on board uh, based on Kavanaugh's concurrence. It seems that he may be as well. But uh, you know, um, I think it's a very strong opinion. The 7-2 number is incredible. And uh, I also don't think, I mean, I guess, you know, one thing I was sort of saying to reporters yesterday when they were like, well, they're just going to come back with these state court challenges is, sure, we'll be ready. Uh, Indian country is has never stopped fighting for its children, will never stop fighting for its children, and has understood for a long time that uh, you know, this is going to be one of those long-term uh, campaigns and, and efforts to be diligent in state courts uh, as well as the federal courts. And so I think, uh, you know, it would be helpful for everyone to monitor any cases that they might be involved in to look for, uh, you know, any interventions in those cases from some of the attorneys who have been involved in Brackeen and the federal court challenges preceding Brackeen. Um, we should all be, you know, vigilant in looking out for them and expect them. Uh, but I, I think, uh, I guess one, one final thought is that I think one of the great benefits and silver linings of this case is that it has really galvanized just a, an uh, avalanche of support from ICWA. And we have this amazing set of briefs from this case where not just tribes and tribal organizations uh, jumped in, but the whole universe of experts in child welfare, foster care, um, uh, in addition to the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics. We are well prepared, I think, with this suite of briefs to uh, pivot potentially and turn to these uh, state court challenges that might be coming. I want to go to Beth now, and Aaron, you had mentioned that, you know, these, these forces that are aligning, that are pushing hard, they've got deep pockets, and, and Beth, I want to bring you into the conversation because uh, I think we all know that uh, this is bigger to those folks than ICWA. This is just part of a larger agenda to, to push uh, some of these reforms that they're, they're working really hard on, but at some point, I mean, you have to wonder what the investment is for them, and at what point do they just say, geez, you know, I mean, we're spending a lot of money. We're putting a lot of resources into fighting this ICWA law, and, it, and, and we're losing pretty bad. I mean, at some point, do you see them just kind of cutting their losses and moving towards something else that aligns with their agenda? That's a good question. You know, I hope that's the case. I think, though, that they really see tribal sovereignty as a threat to their interests. Um, but thankfully, you know, we saw in Gorsuch's concurrence that he reinforced what has always been true, that tribes have inherent sovereignty, that that's something the Constitution re respects, and that a bedrock principle of Indian law is that Indian status is political. 
And, you know, we hope that that will be the platform that we can can continue these big wins on. Now, Beth, Justice Thomas, he dissented and he said the federal government has no business allowing tribes to interfere with the welfare of children. Is there an easy way for regular people to understand why the majority of the Supreme Court disagrees with Justice Thomas's opinion with, without us getting too deep into the Tenth Amendment? Yeah, I think just the basic way of saying it is that there's a supremacy clause and federal law preempts state law and um, the the um, and that's, I guess, the basic way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Now, do you see any other remaining legal arguments that ICWA opponents can, can try and go after now? I don't think so, but I'm happy to defer to others if, if they have any other thoughts on that. Okay. Aaron, how about you? What, any other potential avenues that uh, the opponents of ICWA can pursue going forward? Well, I think they'll really turn um, – uh, I, mean, I agree with that. I think that, that they will, will you know, pivot to these um, equal protection challenges um, I would note there is one, uh, um, I, I believe it's still pending, cert petition that at least one of the attorneys in the case, uh, anti-ICWA attorneys, has already um, uh, filed with the Supreme Court. I believe that's a case about, it's an ICWA case, but it's about transfer to tribal courts. Um, you know, what we always try and remind folks of is that ICWA did not give uh, tribes jurisdiction, <laughs> as best said, uh, uh, tribal jurisdiction over citizen children is inherent. And uh, what ICWID did is, is really uh, uh, recognize that and then create a mechanism in a way for, for state courts to transfer cases to tribal court. I would guess maybe uh, that, that uh, you know, based on that cert petition and what we've seen in other uh, cases that that transfer is maybe one of the next hot issues. I'll also say, uh, you know, just from the perspective of Alaska and and trends that we are starting to see up here is, um, you know, and every state is different uh, in terms of uh, state procedures. But in Alaska, there's a uh, a state court procedure to register uh, tribal court orders in state court in in order to give them full faith and credit. And we have seen an uptick in anti-ICWA and anti-tribal attorneys challenging those routine registrations. So that's just from my limited view up here uh, as to what we might see next. But I think, as I mentioned, it it is good for everyone to just be vigilant um, in the cases that they're involved in and to um, chat with your colleagues and your allies about trends that you might be seeing um, developing uh, from uh, anti-ICWA attorneys. Thank you, Aaron and Beth. Anyone with a question or a comment or just like to sound off on yesterday's Supreme Court ruling, our phone number here at Native America Calling is 1-800-996-2848. We got a bunch of phone lines still open, so please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. And we do have a caller on the line right now, in fact, Evelyn Blanchard. She is Laguna Pueblo and Yaki she is a family and children advocate. Hello, Evelyn. Good morning. Good morning. It's wonderful you're able to call in. Now, Evelyn, you were involved in ICWA way back in the beginning in the 1970s. 
Did you ever imagine that we would be here where we are now, that law that you worked on so hard, being challenged so vigorously like it was? No question about it. You saw it coming? I, yes, I said it was not un, it's not unexpected, and there's no question about it. Mm-hmm. The uh, attorneys have highlighted uh, the broad underlying um, uh, issues involved here. Um, I didn't. I became became involved in the development uh, and enactment of the law in, in I think about 1972, uh, when. Um, I was introduced to uh, Bertram Hirsch, who at the time was uh, a staff attorney for the Association on American Indian Affairs. And uh, following his uh, work with the then Devil's Lake Sioux Tribe, uh, he took over primary responsibility in the association for, for, for the development of the uh, of the law itself, I mean, he was a staff attorney, and um, uh, he uh, <clears throat> the I should begin by saying that the the impetus for the uh, effort to enact the Indian Child Welfare Act began in in uh, in, in the fall of 1967 uh, when. Uh, uh, Chairman, uh, Devil's Lake Sioux Chairman uh, Lewis Goodhouse uh, brought to brought to brought a matter uh, to the attention of uh, Bill Byler, who was then executive director of the Association on American Indian Affairs. Goodhouse and the tri- Devil's Lake Sioux Tribe and many of the tribes throughout the country have worked with the association since its inception back in 1922. So, okay. It, it was not an unfamiliar association we're talking here, and during the uh, during this uh, conversation with uh, with Byler, uh, Goodhouse uh, told him about uh, a situation at Devil's Lake uh, involving a six-year-old Ivan Brown and his customary grandmother, Mrs. Alex Frenier, who had been Ivan's grand. Uh, Ivan's babysitter since he was an infant. When he was only months old, his mother was burned to death in a fire, and Trunier took Ivan to his uh, maternal grandmother, but she was unable to care for him, and so uh, she decided to keep him. Not long after, she was contacted by the Benson County Child Welfare Department and told that the worker would come to take the child. She agreed to let the department have the child, but nobody showed up. Okay. Okay. Later, she was contacted again and told that a welfare worker would come for him because the department was going to place him for adoption, but no one ever came. Okay. Evelyn, we're going to have to go to a break here in just about another minute or so, but but if you could, just give us a little bit more background about what your role was there um, when ICRO, ICRO was first passed there back in, in 1978. We got involved. My role, uh, my role in the uh, in the work... Uh, was based on by, uh, frankly, disciplinary uh, education and social work. And uh, the uh, need to be able to argue uh, at a theoretical practice level 
what was going on in these cases. That was really the basis of my involvement from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And so as a consequence of that, through the years, well, number one, I got I was uh, invited to provide testimony at the uh, uh, 1974 hearings, which uh, allowed me to and opened the door for me to be uh, to meet other Indian people all across the country who were doing the same kinds of things that 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 uh, that I was trying to do and others working with me were trying to do, and so. Um, out of that um, experience, uh, I just fell into a network of, of, of effort throughout the country. And um, uh, all right, Evelyn, I'm sorry, we're gonna we're, we're gonna have to take another break here. But I uh, really appreciate you calling in and sharing some of that history there with regard to ICWA and your role as well as a, as a family and child advocate. Folks, one more break, and then we're back with more guests and more conversation. Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. We're glad you could join us today on Native America Calling. We're talking about the ruling by the Supreme Court that upholds the 1978 law designed to keep Native families together. You can still call in by dialing 1-800-996-2848. Let's go to our next guest uh, on our show today. Joining us is Hillary Tompkins. She's a partner with the global law firm of Hogan Lovells in Washington, D.C., where she represents Indian tribes and private sector clients in environmental and energy issues. She was the first Native American to serve as solicitor of the U.S. Department of the Interior. Hillary, welcome back to Native America Calling. Hi, Sean. Good to talk with you. You as well, Hillary. Now, Hillary, this case is personal to you to an extent beyond what other Native American people might feel. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, sure. So I am a lawyer and was thrilled with the Supreme Court's ruling, but I also was very, very, very personally affected by this ruling. I am an adoptee. Uh, I'm a member of the Navajo Nation. I was adopted in the late 60s and placed in a non-Native family uh, and was taken very far away from Navajo land to South Jersey. So I have lived the experience of being a a Native person in the adoption system before the passage of ICWA. So this is very um, moving and personal to me and other Native adoptees. Um, You know, we lost our our ability to be full-fledged citizens in our tribal nation. And, you know, interestingly enough, the the Department of the Interior was at the helm for the American Indian Adoption Project. Um, And that project was to take us off of our reservations and away from our families to assimilate us um, and try and make us part of mainstream America. And, uh, you know, I was, I lived that, you know, in the 70s. I was a Native kid 
growing up in a uh, predominantly white area, and I, you know, felt the effects of that very deep personal psychological pain and struggle. And, um, you know, there was times when I wasn't sure I, I would make it. Um, so the Indian Child Welfare Act is so important to the future of Native children. Um, it gives us that chance to be connected with our tribal societies. And I'm just so pleased that children don't have to go through this in the future, that ICWA remains intact. Hillary, the irony that you just shared is really phenomenal that here you were a product of the Indian Adoption Project, and yet you wind up there at Department of Interior and so heavily involved in, in ICWA. And, um, you know, it's a case. It, it involves a child who is part Navajo. Does, does that resonate with you as well, relating on, on that level? Well, well, sure. You know, I, I feel like it's so important that this country not go backwards. We need to start listening to native voices, to tribal nations, to our perspective, and not have folks in Washington, D.C. making decisions for us and about our people and our children and our future generation. Um, and yes, it's painful whenever we see uh, one of our own who is being put in a situation where they will have challenges, life challenges that will affect them for the rest of their lives, mm -hmm. where they will feel disconnected from who they are as Native people. You know, I've often thought when I was little, you know, you grow up and, and you feel like, you know, what's wrong with me? What am I doing here? What, how did I get dealt this card? And, you're, and these are children. Like, I think that's so important to emphasize that you're putting children into this situation, not grown adults who have perhaps the coping mechanism. Right, and right. Yeah, so, yeah, my heart, it's heart-wrenching. But, but I want to add, we're also very strong people, too. Mm -hmm. So we're survivors, you know, and I'm okay now. <laughs> I, have these, I have this history that I carry with me. But, well, you know, I want to... Yeah, I want to ask you about that history, Hillary, and I and I mean this with all respect. And if this is too personal, then I understand it. Feel free not to to respond. But you know, I've read that that you grew up in a, in a loving home, and you got a great education. You, you grew up in a stable home, and and yet here you you know you have these you're conflicted with regard to to how you came to live in that home and and what the significance of that was. And I, I just wonder, like, do you ever think to yourself, well, you know, if was I, was I better off where I went to New Jersey? Would I have been better off staying at home? Or do you ever feel resentment towards, towards the people that raised you, your family in New Jersey? Or do you have any thoughts like that? Or how do you grapple with that? If, if you're comfortable talking about that, Hillary. Sure, of course. You know, I, I love my parents. They, they're amazing parents. And they are my parents. They raised me. They were great. They told me at a young age I was Navajo. And they said, you're going to go back to the reservation. And they encouraged me to go to Dartmouth College, which has um, the charter to educate Native students. So th that is a very strong connection. And I think non-Native parents, you know, think that that is 
good, like in the best interest of the child, right? You're in a stable home, you have opportunity, um, you have love. And I think, you know, what my parents and I have talked about very openly is like, it's not enough. There's something missing where you feel still very lost and you feel like you, you, and everyone wants to feel like they belong in society, no matter who you are, right? That's a human condition. And these Native children, like myself, you don't belong. Like, love does not cure that. And I think that's what is people don't understand, that, like, you can, so, I, and I was angry. I was angry as a kid. I was so mad. I was like, well, how did I end up here? This is, like, so wrong. And I love my parents at the same time. And I loved, you know, that um, I had their love. But I also felt like, where's Navajo? Like, where's my people? I went back to Navajo. I reconnected with my family. But it's just, when I went back to Navajo the first time, they were like, who are you? You don't look Navajo. You don't sound Navajo. You don't know Navajo. You don't know the culture. You're not one of us. So when that happened, then that's, just think psychologically, where, where that puts somebody. Mm-hmm. Like, where are, you, where are you supposed to go? And so that's, that's the hard truth of this, of these, you know, what happens when you get disconnected like that. Right, right. And Hillary, thank you for sharing, because I think that's what, you know, a lot of outsiders, they look at it like, well, you know, ultimately what's best for the kid? And maybe if they're pulled out of their culture and all these things, but if they they go to a loving home, a home that can support them financially, maybe they're kind of better off. And I think you've just done a really good job of just explaining the complexity to that and the question. And I've heard you also say that even if ICWA had been a law when you were a child, and even if maybe you still had gone to live with that family in New Jersey, your family, the people that you love, there still might have been a way for you to stay more dialed in and connected to your Navajo culture, which wasn't possible pre-ICWA. Is that right? Correct. And I, and I think this is where there is a misconception about racial versus political. If I had been able to, to connect with Navajo um, and learn the language, learn the culture, learn the, state, the stages in our traditional law of our ceremony, Navajo has a huge legal system, a huge court system, laws in the book that are based on our traditions. I could then today be a full-fledged participant in Navajo society, but I can't because there's the language barrier and the lack of understanding of a lot of the culture. Now, I tried as a young adult. I went back, immersed myself, lived on the reservation. It was, it was really important for me to do that, and it was positive. But it, it, it's just something you don't get as growing up in the culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the political angle that I think people miss. Our societies are based on our culture and in our traditions. Um, and so if you don't know that, you can't be politically engaged in a way that advances tribal sovereignty moving forward. Um, and that's why it's, it's not about race. It's about tribal nations and how we can govern ourselves moving forward. Hillary, thank you for that. And with that, I think it's appropriate to go back to Derek now, our other Navajo guest who is on the line. And, and Derek, let's talk a, a little bit about this regarding what Hillary has just said from a tribal nation perspective. And tell us 
what specifically does this decision on ICWA mean for the Navajo Nation going forward? Sure. I just want to say uh, to Shada Hillary, thank you for that uh, statement and for sharing the story with us. Uh, for Diné people, I think it's really important. I think for Native people in general, uh, the court uh, is very clearly recognizing the inherent authority for tribes to govern their own internal relations. Uh, you, Justice Gorsuch mentioned some of the early tax cases that spoke to that principle, and they wanted to solidify that moving forward. And I think, um, you know, when you think about ICWA and you think about, you know, the various contexts that ICWA comes into play at, um, you think about all the different federal Indian policies that have, have happened over the year, the years, you think about termination, you think about removal, you think about the reservation system, all of that has really uh, left our communities in, um, in disarray in some instances. And so this federal statute that um, helps ensure that even in those situations where there is disarray and um, the community has been disrupted, that there's still, you know, a clear underlying principle that tribal nations as political entities and Native people, you know, as sovereign uh, individuals uh, with the right to family as well, have a say in, you know, how our children are handled, how our future is handled. And so um, for us, I think that um, have been watching this case, it's a huge uh, momentous uh, victory. And it also, you know, helps um, usher in this new court. We have four new justices, uh, relatively new justices, and I think it was unclear really, you know, how the new justices were going to accept uh, federal Indian law and how they're going to review federal Indian law. And so, you know, with uh, Justice Barrett, you know, authoring this opinion and coming out so strongly, so, so strongly and, and forcefully, um, basically championing the congressional authority to pass the, the statute itself, I think, sends a strong signal um, for Native peoples. And Derek, I, I want to ask you quickly re regarding that decision, and, you know, because it was such a surprise with regard to, to the makeup of the Supreme Court, and here it is, uh, a big win for Indian country, but do you have any explanation as to why that ruling occurred when, when so many people thought it was going to go the other? What do you think is really motivating the Supreme Court right now? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, organization, right? I mean, I think uh, Aaron spoke to it, and Sarah spoke to it, and, and uh, Governor Gill spoke to it. The tribes were very organized, you know, this go around. And um, if you look at the brief package uh, from the district court to the Fifth Circuit to the Supreme Court, it's very tight. It's very well organized. It's very well written. There's tons of um, scholarly articles that are cited and legal analysis that have been put forward in those different briefs. And, you know, I think a lot of what you saw was that the court uh, was educated by these briefs. And that's also not to dismiss what Governor uh, talked about earlier is the power of prayer. I think uh, there's one thing that unites uh, Native people throughout the country. It's our children and our future. And I think you had a lot of uh, strong prayers uh, being put forward by Native people, a lot of cedar burned, a lot of sage burned uh, to, you know, to try to help for a good outcome here. And uh, as Diné people, we always try to look for, you know, um, kind of positive things and, and try to think about things in a positive way. That's kind of part of our cultural makeup and the fabric of our communities. And so I think, you know, a lot of that, you know, good intention and a lot of uh, positive effort and collaboration uh, went a long way here. And so uh, I hope that this continues and I hope that um, we can continue to be effective, you know, when these issues come up before the high court. Appreciate it, Derek. And I, I want to go back to Sarah Kostelik now for the last word. And, and Sarah is the executive director of the National Indian Child Welfare Association. 
Sarah, here we are, uh, Friday morning. Fireworks are kind of settling down. Where does your energy now go now? What's next on the agenda? What a great question. You know, I think the Supreme Court has been clear that uh, that ICWA is binding federal law. And I think with this, you know, galvanized avalanche of support that Aaron described to us, now is the time to turn our energy to strengthening ICWA implementation and ensuring better compliance with the law. There's a full body of evidence that shows that ICWA is the gold standard of child welfare policy and practice. Uh, ICWA is an evidence-based law. And so um, there's work that we can do to shore that up, and we can be thinking about that in multiple ways. We can be thinking about tribal capacity, and our best line of defense is a good offense. And the more kids that we can keep at home and our tribal systems and out-of-the-state systems, the better off we are. We can also think about the importance of tribal-state relationships. State, states can't do a good job of implementing ICWA, of, uh, of following the requirements, um, unless they have strong tribal partners. So there's a lot of work that we can do at the state level to strengthen those relationships, thinking about funding agreements, thinking about state ICWA laws, uh, thinking about ICWA courts. So there are a whole variety of, of mechanisms there we can consider. And then looking to our federal partners, uh, we know that there are some places where states don't want to have relationships with tribes, where they're not willing to work cooperatively with tribes. And we look to our federal partners to use their influence um, to support states in having a collaborative relationship with tribes and making sure that, that states are doing a good job of complying with this binding federal law that is also the gold standard of child welfare practice that produces the best possible outcomes for kids and families. So I think doubling down on our efforts around, <clears throat> excuse me, on our efforts around implementation and ensuring mm -hmm. compliance are really important next steps. Well, folks, we are out of time. I want to thank all of our guests and callers today. Beth Wright, former governor of Tusuki Pueblo, Gilvey Hill, Evelyn Blanchard, Sarah Castellick, Hillary Tompkins, and Aaron Lynch. We're going to be back next week, starting off with a recognition of Juneteenth, by talking with Black and Native descendants known as the Black Seminoles. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves-Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather, our chief operations officer. And the president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe weekend. Education sovereignty. It begins with us. That's the theme of the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show to be held in Albuquerque October 18th through the 21st. You have an important role to play in the ongoing effort to reclaim education sovereignty. The agenda includes an educator day, a student day, professional learning opportunities, and the NIEA awards ceremony. Early bird registration is July 28th at NIEA.org. Support by Amerind. 
Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amarant works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.